This is Will Morris, Executive Medical Director of Cleveland Clinic Innovations for another Health Amplified, a Cleveland Clinic Innovation Podcast. And with me as always is Dr. Akhil Seklecha, Managing Partner of Cleveland Clinic Ventures. Today we have a tremendous guest, a partner of us in Innovations and Ventures, uh, William Peacock. Bill Peacock is the Chief of Operations of Cleveland Clinic. 24 years as a captain in the Navy, um, performing the role of a civil engineer, he is at the intersection of how operations meets innovation and care delivery, overseeing information technology, supply chain, global operations. Bill is literally at the crossroads of not only how we perform our duties and how we can manage patient care in these unprecedented times, but how we build fortitude and resiliency for the years ahead. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Dr. Morris, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me today. And uh, Dr. Sokletcha, thank you for uh, inviting me as well. Thank you. Well, I'll start off. Obviously, the, 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 this is the year that truly pressure tests an organization's ability to, uh, you know, withstand unprecedented patient volumes, unprecedented caregiver pressures, and supply chain issues that I don't think anyone has ever anticipated. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you led through this change, and perhaps even tapping into your years in in, in military service and how that actually allowed you to think innovatively and in. Uh, guiding us through these undire times? Well, uh, hard to pick where to start, but I guess if I take myself back to February uh, and the January time, watching the disease migrate its way across the globe, just at home on my television, uh, you know, watching CNN and others, and then logging into the Johns Hopkins website and the other websites that were showing the color red exploding across, uh, you know, Asia and the China market and making its way. And then these little episodic events happening uh, both in the, the Portland or the, uh, the Oregon, Washington state area, and then on the East Coast as well. Uh, you know, it became readily apparent that uh, we were in for something. And I don't think we quite knew what at the time. But uh, one of my colleagues that sits right next to me in the, in the office suite up here is uh, uh, the chief of medical operations. And I've always worked very closely with him uh, with our disaster preparedness operations, our command center. And we thought early on that it was important to set up the command center and start tracking uh, how this virus pattern was going to migrate. Um, with the international hat that I wear, I was fortunate to have a purview into what was happening in the Middle East with the virus. So we were able to see an earlier episode of this virus in Abu Dhabi, but also through international and, you know, the clinic's been an international organization since inception back in 21. Uh, our connections with physicians globally was incredibly important. We were able to hear firsthand how ICU docs were completely overwhelmed in Italy. We were having conversations in the command center with Italian intensivists that were trying to manage an incredible overflow of ventilated patients. And so we were able to use that information, our business analytics team, uh, to make projections and estimations of what kind of patient volume we would see as early as the February and March timeframe. And the early numbers were, they were quite alarming. Uh, we thought at one point, 
that our Northeast Ohio market might be besieged with over 8,000 patients. We don't have that many beds in the market. You know, we only have close to 4,000 and we're still trying to provide other care. So questions, do we need a surge capability? Do we need some way to expand the number of available beds? On the equipment side, uh, we were very concerned that we might not have enough ventilators. <clears throat> we were very concerned we might not have enough PPE. And you asked me about my military experience. When this event happened, it reminded me very, very much of how we in the military prepared for chemical or biological warfare and how we used to drill, drill, drill on how to don our protective gear, doff our protective gear, check each other and present to each other that we were completely sealed and safe. You, you as many of your listeners probably know and your viewers, we didn't know if this was a surface virus, the latency of this virus and how long it would be in the atmosphere. There were a lot of unknown unknowns about this virus when we were in the spring of 2020. So we had to plan for the worst. We, uh, we saw the supply chain for a lot of the protective gear heavily compromised mm. uh, over the years in an effort to control cost, Many of our major distributors for a lot of our PPE had leveraged low cost industrial markets in both Mexico and in China to obtain a lot of the face masks and the gowns and the shields that would be needed to amplify the protection of our caregivers. Nasal pharyngeal swabs and the flocking material that goes on the end of the tips, we, we found that a lot of that actually comes out of Italy. So it forced us as an organization to look beyond our normal limits of our supply channels and go much further back. The ventilator issue, I think any of your listeners would be familiar with the concerns that we had nationally on ventilator supply. And of course, we saw the country resort to things like the conversion of industrial plants into ventilator production facilities for a renewal of a national stockpile. We were concerned we didn't have time for that production run to take place. So we partnered with a local aerospace manufacturer who had a really strong 3D printing capability to see if we can make splitter valves. And we must have gone through dozens of iterations and uh, practice sessions with our pulmonologists and our pulmonology techs to see if we could split a single ventilator between two patients as we were hearing that was a methodology that was being used in China and in Italy to try and provide that much needed care for patients whose lungs were severely compromised in the early phases of this first wave as it made its way across the country and particularly New York where we, we saw this was going on. And I, I could go on forever, but I, I don't wanna, uh, you know, I, it, it's hard to stop telling the story because right. it just for so long and it's still going on today. I think, you know, one of the supply chain was, I think, you know, usually it's the unsung heroes. And I don't think many people, certainly as clinicians, really understood the, the, the miracle that is that supplies appear on the floor and, and that, you know, the nursing staff and the physicians, uh, uh, you know, have what they need always. And we kind of are remiss to think, well, what really happens? But out of this came a tremendous appreciation and awareness of the globalness of the supply chain and actually, you know, weak points. 
Um, going forward, you know, manufacturing stateside, you know, helps build resiliency. But are there other opportunities like um, perhaps, you know, leveraging the community for job growth creation? You know, what are the other, I'd say, positive intended consequences of, of sourcing locally and building kind of redundancy and resiliency? Yeah, let me just tackle a little bit of that question first by describing what we saw happen. We we saw our supply chain choke down and we were very concerned that distribution was going to be taken over by the federal government with regard to masks and gowns and gloves. And so uh, we used our business analytics capability to start projecting out if under different scenarios, what would be our burn rate? What would be our demand? And we actually did modeling with GoPro cameras on some of our clinicians' heads and our nurses and caregivers in ICUs. What can we do? How many sets of PPE will we burn through in a COVID inundated ICU any given day? What will that number be? And we actually figured it out for several modalities. How many sets would we burn through in a COVID emergency department? How many sets would we burn through in a COVID regular nursing floor? How many in an intensive care unit? How many in an imaging location where we're trying to shoot somebody's lungs? And we came up with all kinds of adjustments and iterations to be and, and try to be very precise with those numbers so that we could project out under different exposure scenarios what we would need. That was an important first step, figuring out the demand. And then we began looking at, well, what can we buy? If we can't buy it, what can we find in the market that can be donated? And if we can't get it donated, what can we make? And this is where we work really closely with the state, with the innovations group, in fact. We went with you know, our, our partners in Ohio with a big company called Magnet to look for local manufacturers that were ready to turn production lines into mask makers, into face shield makers, right? And I already mentioned earlier, into a ventilator splitter. So, you know, that, those partnerships were absolutely amazing. And of course, we got besieged with well-meaning individuals who had a channel to some source of supply from a friend of a friend of a friend. But we were always worried about the safety and the efficacy of those products first. We had to insist on sending us a sample. Let us try it on. Let us make sure it's safe. I think the other thing that we looked at very hard was disinfection. And in this state, we had a couple of different approaches, uh, you know, for, for prolonging the ability to extend an N95 mask, a, a place where fortunately in this market, we never had to utilize. We looked at both ultraviolet and hydrogen peroxide sterilization methodologies to see if they would kill COVID viral load that might be present on these types of things. We even went to the point of building out a sterilization facility for N95 masks at our laundry facility in nearby Collinwood, Ohio, because we knew that if we really got an extremis, that we were gonna have to be turning these masks back. And we set up a line. We, we were gonna hermetically seal these things in shrink wrap to give caregivers confidence that a reused mask would be safe for use. Um, so those are just a few examples of the things we did. I think we learned an enormous amount about the capabilities of our community, mm. the eagerness of our partners to support healthcare, care, um, and the capabilities within the state. 
Um, I think all of us in healthcare have probably come away, at least from this first year, I think we're still you know, early in a second year of this pandemic, but I think we've come away with a greater appreciation for looking beyond the distributor and looking at the source. And I know firsthand that there are companies here in Ohio that are getting into the non-woven masks, that are getting into the gloves and gowns. Uh, will these businesses be durable? Will they be sustainable? I think our distributors will be part of the equation of resolving that because they'll have to figure in the higher costs of manufacturing and how they make their margins. We as providers may look at buying a certain cohort of our supply demand locally so that we can have that assurance that we've got a durable inventory in the event of another pandemic or in successive waves of the one we're in right now. So those are sort of sort of the things that I think about and our supply chain team thinks about very hard as we go through what I hope is the backside of a third wave in our, our Northeast Ohio market. How, you know, I'm curious about data. So one of the things you brought up uh, when you were discussing medical operations and, and, and the actual operations behind the scenes, you know, you mentioned uh, international data. Right, so understanding what's going on in some, uh, whether it's in Italy or some of our other facilities, I imagine that, uh, and this is more of a guess, that the initial intent of viewing that data was was more around uh, the financial operations. Uh, but you know, did you is was that your perception, and did you see that evolve more towards the medical operations, meaning capacity and supply chain taking more importance as as you've described? And how, how did you see the, the IT infrastructure adapt or, or you know, out of necessity for sharing that data globally, right? Especially as it impacts uh, preparation here in the States. So the, the image that's clear in my mind, Akil, is uh, a meeting with the, a command center meeting where Dr. Connor Delaney, now our president down in Florida, uh, had Italians uh, from uh, Florence, Italy on the phone and they were describing their ICU. It was more directed towards what type of clinical techniques are being used to manage these patients. And we heard about things like proning, and we heard about use of steroidals, and we heard about um, uh, other means, and, and we heard about what the, the presentation of this, you know, uh, uh, pulverized glass in the lungs on CT scan. It was really basic, down and dirty clinical treatment discussions at the medical operations level in the first early conversations internationally. Then it kind of shifted to workforce durability and resiliency. And then from there, it shifted into protecting the workforce. And so those discussions and being part of them uh, led me to talk to our team in operations and start to do the forecast modeling that was necessary to make sure we had the necessary pharmaceuticals. So inside supply chain is a group that supports our pharmacy team. Pharmacy is actually part of medical operations, but we were all one team, one fight here. And so they started, you know, particularly for patients that needed ventilation, the paralytic drugs was an important thing for us to track availability of, as well as steroidals. And then we became concerned about blood utilization. And so tracking 
blood and forecasting blood availability forward. We're very good at looking at, and up until this pandemic, we're very good at looking at historical record and par level utilization. Mm -hmm. But this pandemic forced us more than ever to think like a Navy guy does when he goes out on a ship for 60 days or six months. What's gonna be the burn rate of my fuel and my food and my water? And uh, that translated into what's the burn rate of my masks, my gowns, my gloves, what's the uh, utilization rates on my ventilators, on my ECMO machines, on my dialysis machines. Um, and so those were the things that we charted. And honestly, we started looking in the early days anyway. We used a metric or rubric that you would have seen on any of the major television news stations, we use the rubric of social distancing. Assuming 30% social distancing, 50% social distancing, 90% social, do you remember those curves? Yeah. They were all parabola, they were all parabolas. And each, the, the height of those parabolas was directly proportional to a social distancing assumption. And that drove the height of, and the altitude of that parabola and that parabola would correspond to bed utilization, it would correspond to ICU utilization, and regrettably, it would also relate to mortality. And so using uh, those models, we came up with different burn rates over 90 days, uh, over 120 days, over 30 days. And we began a process of buying up to a 90-day supply because we believed, you know, we didn't know how many of these parabolas we were gonna go through, how many of these surges we were gonna go through, but we knew our state in particular uh, issued an edict to cancel elective surgery. So hospitals in Ohio would not consume more protective equipment than their healthcare providers could, could don and doff to treat patients. Um, well, you're bringing back a lot of memories with this line of questioning. <laughs> Hopefully good. I mean, what I'm hearing, and, and again, and I hope those listening is, is, I mean, the degree of collaboration and the passion in which we all share the same North Star, which is how do we serve the patient and the community, um, but with such diversity of experience and humility of, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, or what you're doing, if we all have that same mission and, 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 and serve and serve, you know, what, what a tremendous capacity looking forward. Um, you know, I would imagine, you know, the logistics conversation, the supply chain conversation continues with vaccination. What are your thoughts you're sitting down perhaps in front of uh, the, the, the new president, Biden. You know, what are the roles of the individual health systems, the state, the, the federal government, or, or learning logistic experts from, you know, business sector, even military? How do we continue to Akil's question, the shameless exchange of data and information to raise the bar? One of the things that's so impressive is our CEO uh, meets regularly with the CEOs of what would normally be considered our competitor hospitals in this market to have discussions. And most recently, those discussions have been exactly on this topic about vaccination. Uh, you know, the vaccines are, are, are being distributed in vials uh, to all of the healthcare nodes. 
the healthcare systems in Ohio. But think about this. There's about 11 million people in Ohio. And uh, the governor, if you just look at the next four weeks in front of us, will probably have about 100,000 doses allocated to him. The state only gets about 3% of the vaccine doses based on the population of the state of Ohio. And then the state has to make an allocation to the hospitals. So the hospitals, uh, when we look at the Cleveland Clinic, we got about 3% of the governor's 3% that he got. So uh, what does that mean in numbers? Uh, Cleveland Clinic getting about three to 4,000 vaccines a week, somewhere in that range. <clears throat> the governors control the distribution. And when the vaccines were first in receipt of their emergency use authorizations, um, the direction from our Ohio governor was to vaccinate healthcare workers only. And so that's how we began. And we rolled through our entire population using the help of our MyChart app to schedule appointments for healthcare providers. And we set up a single distribution site initially because we were concerned about uh, maintaining uh, the chain of thermal control over these mRNA-based vaccines. Uh, hopefully, uh, and now currently, we've set up vaccination sites around the system, five of them to be precise for our particular uh, platform here in Northeast Ohio. Uh, we watched the governor in the state of Florida, where we also operate, open up vaccination to 65 and older patients very quickly and very rapidly, which caused a run on healthcare providers down in the Florida market. Our governor elected here in Ohio to open it up to 80 year olds and above just as recently as Monday. And so we began that course of treatment and we have been working our way down a list of patients that we serve from 90 and above, and then every day incrementing down to 89-year-olds, 88-year-olds, 87-year-olds, working our way down the list. Uh, I don't have today's numbers, but I know, I think Tuesday, we saw about 23% uptake on the 90-year-olds, and I know we got through all of our 90-year-olds yesterday, and we'll continue to march down the list. It's interesting to be a healthcare system with global presence, because uh, we get to listen to Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi and that market, uh, not just their experience with the mRNA-based vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer uh, BioNTech, but we get to listen to uh, their experiences with the Sinovac and uh, with the, uh, the, what is it, the Soyuz uh, or the mm -hmm. Sputnik, the Sputnik vaccines. So we're uh, getting to hear what the uptake is both on the patient side and on the caregiver side uh, with those single dose um, dead virus uh, vaccines that uh, are, have been provide, uh, produced in those markets. Um, so it, it really, I think, adds to the texture, the understanding. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, two other groups at the clinic uh, besides just supply chain. I, I have to mention our infectious disease group which has been locked onto this since the beginning and the inception and an incredible partner to us in supply chain and operations. And I have to mention the Learner Research Institute, which has you know, studied this virus 
tested this virus, contributed to the science around the virus, and, and been incredibly engaged globally in uh, determining, you know, all of the aspects of transmission and, and impact and symptoms and uh, reaction to vaccine, et cetera. They've produced amazing content uh, to the medical, uh, medical space on this. So, uh, Bill, I, I, was, I think we could talk about our reaction to the coronavirus pandemic to it, it's a it's a lengthy conversation in and of itself, but I wanted to switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, you you happen to be an integral member of our commercialization committee, uh, which which really is around new company formation and investment committee for startups. So you're you're in a pivotal role for how we support innovation uh, towards commercialization and getting you know the the invention and IP generated at the clinic out to patients. How how do you view uh, the, the Cleveland Clinic support of startups uh, and, and in particular the startups that we have going forward I, I, because it's such a cornerstone of, of who we are and our DNA. I think it's a, 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 an incredibly important part of our mission, our vision, and what we value here at Cleveland Clinic, which is innovation. And uh, being a part of this team that evaluates these opportunities is truly an honor. It's humbling to see the thought processes and the partnerships that are formed and the opportunities created uh, to uh, to try and improve care for patients through either the use of uh, mechanical devices or interventions or digital plays that might increase or improve patient care or give ease to patient care. And being a part of that committee, you get to see both sides of that world. And I'm encouraged that our physicians want to play in this space. They want to make a difference. And um, I, what really always amazes me at this, that they find time to do this in with their education and their patient care roles as well, that they are able to carve out time for innovation. And I, I think it's an important part of the clinic. It's important commitment we make to them. So uh, I'm glad to be a part of it. Well, I want to be respectful of time um, because you are tremendously busy and we want to be respectful of, of your time. You know, to that end, we want to thank you because, you know, despite, I mean, an unbelievable oversight in terms of the operation, a global operation, whether it be protective services, we talked about supply chain information technology, you have time to sit back and hear from the innovative frontline caregivers, researchers, clinicians, nursing, what are they thinking and provide that insight. And I think at the end of the day, that is a true testament to you, your team, you are constant partners and collaborators. And so while this has been a tremendous year for the books, I also think it is a bellwether of how our most important asset is how we collaborate, communicate, and really think creatively for the future to come. So thank you very much for your time. Um, and we look forward to continuing this dialogue. Thank you for listening. This is Will Morris with Health Amplified, the Cleveland Clinic Podcast.